reading this morning is taken from the book of Philippians, chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. Philippians, chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. You can find this on your pew Bible, page 1044, in the lower left. It's revealed to us that this passage is given to us at the words of the inspired Apostle Paul. The entire letter was directed to the church as it met at Philippi. Surely these words are intended for us today as well. Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on, that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of for me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do... Forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Good morning. It is good to see each of you. If you're visiting with us, thank you so much for being here. You encourage us by being here, and we hope that we can be an encouragement to you. A correction to announcement. The outreach team number four will meet tonight, this evening, after services down front. So contrary to the previous announcements, outreach number four will meet uh, tonight down front after services. We just had a text read for us from Paul. As he states about his past. He's not going to use his past for any excuse. And when we think about evangelism, I want to ask you, can you afford any excuse? Because what's at stake? Your soul. Or maybe you're using an excuse for not inviting someone else or encouraging someone else. What's at stake there? Their soul. Can we really afford any excuses when we think about the worth and the value of a soul? John Wooden is considered one of the greatest coaches to ever coach college basketball. The game of the century, supposedly, was in January of 1968, and it was a regular season game. At least that's the way it was billed. It was the first regular season game to ever be aired on national television. They were playing, UCLA was playing the Houston Cougars. Each team had a big man, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, of course, was UCLA's seven-foot, two-inch giant. Tremendous basketball player. Elvin Hayes was the big man for the Cougars. As the time approached, what had little publicity was the fact that Kareem had not played in the two previous games because of a scratch on his iris, which left him literally seeing double vertical vision. But this game was such a big game, he begged the coach, let me play. The coach asked him if he thought he could play. He insisted that he could. He did play. It was the first time in 47 games that they lost a game. It was the worst game that Kareem ever played in his career. He only scored 15 points. He had his... Shot blocked three times. And the big man, Big E, on the other team, he scored 39 points. 
Now, the reason Wooden, at the age 93, still tells this story today was because after the game, when the media went up to Big E, he boasted about the fact now all the nation of America knows who is the greatest basketball player in America. It's me. They went over to Kareem and they interviewed him. He never once said anything about his injury, about the fact that he was literally seeing two goals and two players and two balls at all time. He never made one excuse. It was because of his skill and his ethic and his integrity that Wooden counts him as one of the greatest basketball players he's ever coached. Two months later, they met again in the finals. His vision was perfectly clear this time. The final score was UCLA 101 to only 69. And Big E, Kareem shut him down to only 10 points. What's the point? I've made an observation in life, and you can see if you agree with this. When people do not step up to the line and toe the line of their responsibility, they tend to make excuses. When people do take their responsibilities seriously, even when they succeed, they don't boast about it. They make no excuses. They make no boast. They get up each day and they do what they believe is their responsibility. Friends, this morning, let's study from Romans, the first chapter, and then go over to Philippians, the third chapter. If you would be turning to Romans, the first chapter, and I want us to consider one of the greatest men that ever lived as it pertains to evangelism. He was a huge success. What made him a huge success? As you're turning there, I'd like for you to look at the screen and notice Hebrews, the ninth chapter, and verse 27. It's appointed unto a man once to die, and after this, the judgment. I want to ask you, do you really believe that? Do you really believe that you'll stand on the day of judgment and you'll be responsible for your soul? That you will give an account? Do you really believe that everybody you know will stand on the day of judgment? Do you really believe that it's appointed for a man once to die? Do you believe that's an appointment that you shall keep? Do you believe that you won't change that appointment? You can change your dental appointment or you can change an appointment that you have with a mechanic or a hairstylist, but you can't change the appointment of death. You can't change the fact that Jesus is going to come back again. And when Jesus comes back again, someone is going to be in the middle of brain surgery. And that surgeon is not going to look up and say, Jesus, give me about three hours and I'll be finished with this. Everything as we know it will cease. The earth will be burned with fire and all the elements therein will also be destroyed. Friends, that day is coming where us... All of us and everyone that's ever lived on the face of this earth will stand before the Lord and they will either hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant, or they will hear, depart from me. And the question that begs to be asked this morning, am I ready for that and am I helping anyone else on this earth be ready for that appointment? It's my responsibility. It's my responsibility to respond to the grace of God. It's my responsibility to help others learn of the response that they ought to make in their life. In Romans, the first chapter, we see a man that made no excuses. Give us three I am statements that are powerful when we think in the realm of a man that would not make excuses. 
Every day he would get up and he would do what God sent him to this earth to do. And he also didn't boast about it when he was successful. He just every day got up and did what God designed for him to do. In the 13th verse of Romans, the first chapter, he talks about the fact that he wants to go to Rome and he wants to bear spiritual fruit there. Notice the I am statements as we begin in verse 14. He says, I am a debtor, both to the Greeks and the barbarians, both to the wise and the unwise. So as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. Notice in 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God's salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. Notice back in 14, Paul, how do you do what you do and why do you do what you do? And he says, I don't have a choice about that. I am a debtor. I can't make excuses for why I ought to not do it and why other people ought to do it. I wake up every day and I owe this. I owe my life and my service to Jesus Christ. Other people have helped me learn about Jesus, Ananias. Other people have helped me grow, Barnabas. I owe it to others to help them learn about Jesus, to help them grow. I owe this. Now notice, as we go into the next verse, he says, as much as in me is. In other words, the mindset here is Paul is saying, I'm ready to give everything that I have for this cause. What would happen to the Mount Juliet Church of Christ if every member here, 2007, gave every ounce of their being to reaching their friends and community? You think how this place would look different at the end of 2007. What if everybody invited someone every week What if everyone here went out of their way to greet every visitor? What if every visitor was followed upon by every member or at least several members? What if everyone that was baptized was surrounded with a family that loved them and they nurtured them and they studied with them and they supported them? What if those that were falling away were loved and and people were leaving the 99 and they were going out to find that one and they weren't stopped? looking until they found that one. What if everybody here gave every ounce of their being as much as in me is? Because after all, it's my responsibility. No excuses. You don't have to brag on me. You don't have to give me a that a boy. I'm just doing what God's asked me to do. Now let's pause right here and make sure we understand not everybody's going to be a teacher, not everybody's going to be a preacher. But whatever ability and resources God has given you, that ought to be used to encourage other people. What has God given you that you could use to encourage others? He gives all of us the opportunity to invite. He gives all of us the opportunity to pray fervently. We ought to be prayer warriors in this matter. And then He gives each of us opportunities to build relationships and to encourage people. He does give some the opportunity and the ability to teach. If that is for you, have you developed that? Friends, what are we doing so that we can stand with Paul and so that we can say, in his next line there in 15, I'm ready. You see, his task was, I'm ready to preach. Maybe your task is something else, but can you say, I'm ready? In other words... I'm a debtor. I owe it as much as in me is. And now I am ready. You know, the idea of being ready really carries two lines of thought. And and it's been kind of debated. Which one does Paul mean here? And then most summarize and say, maybe he means both. You know, one, I am ready means that 
Okay, I've got everything prepared. You know, it's kind of like going on a trip. Someone says, are you ready? And you answer that meaning, my bags are packed. Everything's in place. All I have to do is get up the next morning and grab my things. Yes, I am ready. Well, you know, there's another way that we use the phrase, I am ready. And it's the idea of, I'm energetic about this. I'm excited about this. Hey, are you ready to go? I'm ready. Now, that doesn't mean the bags are packed. But it means in willingness. I'm ready. Which one was Paul talking about? Well, we know he was ready in both senses. He was ready every day to share the gospel. He was ready every day to be able to fulfill that task that was before him. But notice this third one. This third one, as we look in verse 16, he says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Friends, we can't be ashamed of Jesus and of his gospel and also say, I'm a debtor that's ready to do what God wants. Now, not everyone accepted Jesus. And we have to be ready to be rejected from time to time also. And that's no reason to throw a pity party. That's just the way it is. And so, as we think about the day of judgment, and we think about our own soul, can we say we're ready? As we think about our friends standing on the day of judgment, can we say we've done everything that we could do to encourage them to be ready also? Now, let's just pretend that this was a Bible class and all of you had a piece of paper and a pen. And and this is especially for some of you that know the Bible pretty well. The text that was just read just a few moments ago, and if you want to be turning to that text, it's over in Philippians the uh, third chapter there, Philippians, the third chapter. And you notice we read about forgetting those things which are behind. And then it's reaching towards the things that are ahead and pressing toward the, the mark or the prize, the calling of the Lord in Christ Jesus. Now, when we think about this, I want to ask you a question. And, and, Just answer what would come off the top of your mind, obviously not out loud, but if you were going to write on a piece of paper, when Paul was saying personally for him, I'm forgetting those things which are behind, what was he forgetting? I just wonder, and we have no way of knowing in this setting, but I just wonder how many of you would have written on that piece of paper he was forgetting and placing behind him that horrific past where he persecuted Christians. He persecuted Christians to such a degree that he was wreaking havoc upon the church, is the way Acts would say it. Luke would record it that way. As a matter of fact, he persecuted Christians with such a degree that when Jesus talked to him through that bright and shining light, he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And so obviously when he was speaking about putting those things behind, that's what he was speaking about. No. Maybe that's referred to in other texts, but that's not at all what he's talking about here. It may be surprising to us that really what Paul was talking about here was that he was saying, listen, if you want to talk about a man's man, if you want to talk about a man that had climbed to the top in his culture and among his peers, if you want to talk about the guy driving the Beamer that's got an Ivy League education that's wearing a $2,000 silk suit, I can boast better than any of them. And I had to forget that past to become a follower of Jesus Christ. 
That is the past that he's speaking of here. Friends, what are we willing to do? What are we willing to give up? What are we willing to become? To be a follower of Jesus that steps up to the line and says, I'm a debtor. I owe it and I'm ready to do it. Let's look at this entire paragraph here. And we'll have to skip around a little bit for time's sake. Let's, let's go to the third verse. We're in Philippians, the third chapter. Notice verse 3. He says, For we are of the circumcision. Here he's talking about the circumcision of Christ, the true circumcision. Who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus. Now, you notice that theme? You remember this year, a theme that we're going to look at several times is the joy of the Lord. We'll come back through sometime later on in the year and we'll study through Philippians looking at the joy of the Lord. And so we'll study this paragraph even from a little bit different angle later on in the year. But notice he talks about rejoicing in Christ Jesus. What does he have to rejoice in? Well, notice what he gave up. And have no confidence in the flesh. Comma, we're going to finish this thought. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh... I more so. You know what Paul's saying there? The paraphrase is, if you think you can boast about fleshly gain, I can top you. Well, what do you have to boast of? Now, we're about to read this list. And if you're not familiar with their customs and culture, this list isn't going to mean a lot to you. If you're familiar with it, this was the top of the top. He was climbing the ladder of success. The things that he couldn't obtain, he was born with. The things that he couldn't obtain by birth, he obtained by education. The things that he couldn't obtain by birth and education, he was attaining them because he was so zealous in his work. He was becoming a man that everyone in his culture was noticing. Here's what he was. Verse 5. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Let's just mention a few of these so that we all can appreciate these. When he says, circumcised the eighth day, what he's saying is, hey, I'm not a proselyte. I was born the real deal. I'm truly of, of this uh, genealogy of people. He wasn't an Ishmaelite, circumcised at 13 years old. Notice also, he says, a stock of Israel. Not just Abraham, as some descendants could only claim. Not just of Abraham and Isaac, as other descendants could only claim. He was a descendant of Abraham, Isaac... And Jacob, ah, his family knew their lineage. That's how much and how important it was to them. And he was of that great tribe of Jacob, or the great descendant of Jacob. And then of the tribe, especially the tribe being that of Benjamin. The tribe that brought about the first king for Israel. The tribe that never deserted David. A tribe that was esteemed. A tribe that if we want to just simply put it, they had a lot of bragging rights. But then, not only that, notice he was also a Hebrew of Hebrews. In other words, not just what he was born with, but it's also that his parents raised him in the Hebrew culture. They learned and spoke the Hebrew tongue, not like some that were deserting that. They maintained the Hebrew lifestyle and the Hebrew customs. And along with that, the Hebrew training. He had the Ivy League training of being trained by Gamaliel. He had the training that Hebrews wanted to have. And then, what about his own personal development? Look what he says in 6. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church. 
He was so zealous in his effort that he was making quite a name for himself that he had already done so much work in Jerusalem that the higher-ups were noting him, giving him official documents, and allowing him to go to other cities. And remember, that's where the conversion took place as he was on his way to Damascus. And then when it just comes right down to a man of integrity, a man that whatever he believed was right, he did it. He says, I'm blameless in that area. And as we went back over those, I accidentally skipped over the fact that he was a Pharisee. You see, that was the sect that he had to choose. He was born of the tribe of Benjamin. He was born an Israelite. He was trained of a Hebrew of Hebrews. But he had to choose what sect. He chose the sect of being a Pharisee because that was the strictest. That was the ones that knew the law the most. That was the kind of ambition that he had in his life. Friends, I don't know if this is sinking in, but please grasp this. He could walk his streets and he could put his shoulders back because he was somebody. He was excelling. He had all of the degrees he needed. He had all of the past he needed. He had a lot to gloat about. But then he learned of Jesus. In the following verses, he says, I decided to count all of those things for loss, for the gain of Jesus. In other words, now, and I'm not putting words into Paul's mouth. This is the terms that he uses. He says, I'm not going to live by fleshly confidence. He says, the things that I uh, could have found fleshly confidence in, I'm not going to live by those anymore. He said, now I'm going to step back and I'm going to find my identity. I'm going to find my confidence. I'm going to find my values. I'm going to find my core beliefs. I'm going to find my hope. I'm going to find everything about my being in the Lord. And then if the Lord can use any of these other things, so be it. You know, many times I've asked you, are you a body with a soul? Are you a soul with a body? That's what it's getting down to. Paul realizes... I'm just a soul that's placed in this body for a short time. And whatever God can use about the way I was born, whatever He can use about my education, whatever He can use about me, it's all about Him and He can use me however He wants. But I'm not going to find my assurance, my confidence based upon this fleshly being on this temporary earthly world that's all going to vanish away someday. And so with that in mind, we have a beautiful unfolding of the third chapter where he says, I had to rediscover myself and I allowed God to find me and mold me. Now I love, there's several verses in here, I'm sure you're the same way, that you just have to love. Uh, it's, the book of Philippians is awesome, but the third chapter is awesome. And so we're going to have to skip over a few, but we've got to slow down at verse 10. Look at verse 10. That I may know Him. And see, this is Paul giving up the fleshly confidence. Well, Paul, what do you want if you're going to give up those things? That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His suffering being conformed to His death, if by any means I may obtain to the resurrection from the dead. Paul, you're not finding your identity in the flesh anymore. What what do you want? He says, I want to know Him. I want to know Jesus I want to know how Jesus would live if if He were in my shoes going into my house. I want to know Jesus so well, I know how He would live if He were in my shoes going to my work. 
I want to know Jesus so well that I know how He would live going through the struggles and the temptations and the challenges and the hardships, the joys and the sorrows that I go through. I want to know Jesus, not only on this earth, I want to know Him for an eternity, face to face. And He also says, I want to know the power of the resurrection. Paul knew he wasn't living for this earth. He wanted something greater. He wanted something beyond this earth. How many times have we done it as as physical families? How many times have we done it as a church family? As a church family, we'll do it again tomorrow. We'll stand by graveside and we'll see a casket carried over and and we'll see it placed into a vault. We'll see a, a cap or a lid placed on the vault and we'll see it lowered into a grave six foot under and we'll see dirt on top of it. And we stand around those a few times and it doesn't take long to realize life is short. It's just a vapor. There has to be something more. I've gone to enough of those funerals. I'm ready now for some reunions. I'm ready now for something that's lasting. I'm ready now for something that's not a hospital. It's eternal healing. It's not a cemetery. It's eternal life. I'm ready not for death. I'm ready to live. And Paul, with all of this in mind, he says, I want to know the power of His resurrection. He's not saying, I want to know how I can become a better Hebrew. He says, I want to know the resurrection. I want to know how how I can climb the ladder of success even greater. I'm already known for zeal. I want to be known for over-the-top zeal. He says, no, I just want to know Jesus. I want to know the power of His resurrection. Now listen, you can't have those two unless you're ready for the next one. He says, I'm ready to suffer in the fellowship or to share in the fellowship of His suffering. He knew that to give Himself wholly to God would mean that times He would have to sacrifice and He'd have to suffer. And if that places Him in the same camp with Jesus, He wanted that fellowship. Pain or rejoicing with Jesus is always good. If I don't know Jesus and I don't know the power of His resurrection, I won't even know how to begin to live a life of suffering with Him. Now it's with that setting that we now can just mention in closing appreciation for these verses 13 and 14. I do not count myself to apprehended, but one thing I do. Forget those things which are behind. I reach forward to those things which are ahead. You see, he's reaching toward eternity. I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul, what is it? You said you're forgetting the things of the past. He says all that fleshly confidence. I'm forgetting about those things. I'm not living for a temporary earth. What are you doing, Paul? The idea of reaches. You know how when something's on the top shelf, in the Greek here, it's that extreme reach. It's where you jump and, and you kind of nudge and you nudge until finally you get it. It's that idea. I'm going to keep reaching. I'm going to keep nudging towards eternity. I don't want to take my eyes off of it. What do you want to hear? I'm going to keep pressing until I hear that, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Paul, what do you want? He says, I want to forget things that are temporary. I don't want to focus on them. I don't want them to become my confidence. What do you want? I want to see eternity. I want to see the Lord. I want to know Him. The power of His salvation. But remember this morning, friends, we're also talking about evangelism. What excuses do we make 
for not sharing this with others? Why do we not offer an invitation to a Bible class or to a worship? I want you to imagine your friend standing before Jesus on the day of judgment. And I want you to imagine the look on your friend's face when they realize that they're not saved. And I want you to imagine that you're standing over here to the side and that friend has just started for the first time to put together what's really taking place. And that is, they have sin that separated them from God and there was a way of salvation and you knew it all along and you never mentioned it to them. And I want you to imagine tears streaming down their face. And I want you to imagine them looking over to you and them saying, Why in the world did you never mention this to me? And now I want you in your mind to answer it. Well, I've never invited you because. Right now, if someone asks you, Why have you not invited that friend? What excuse would you give? Now, will that stand on the day of judgment? Hey, the reason I didn't invite you is because I figured you'd say no. Oh, okay. Well, then I understand. I'm glad you didn't invite me. Thank you for not inviting me. What could we say in the realm of excuses that that friend would say, thank you? One of the greatest mistakes we ever make is when we confuse the living with the dead. You may have heard the story back in April of last year about Laura Van Ryan and Whitney Serrett. They were two of about eight that were riding. They were Taylor University students from Indiana. They were on a van that collided with a semi. Five of them died instantly. Laura's parents were shown to a hospital room where their daughter was in a coma in very serious and critical condition. Whitney's parents were shown a body and they took that body back home to Gaylord, Michigan. They picked out a casket. They had a funeral. They buried their daughter. Five weeks later, Laura's parents are excited when their daughter begins to arouse from the coma. And then the greatest fear struck the mother because of things that her daughter said. When the doctor came in, the mother asked, will you do a DNA test? And he did. And her greatest fear was reality. This was Whitney, not Laura. Laura's body was exhumed from Michigan and brought home for a proper burial in their family. Whitney's parents were called to come down and to see their daughter. Maybe you say, how horrible would that be? Just that whole confusion of life and death. Friends, that's nothing compared to us confusing spiritual life and spiritual death. When we have a friend that has the tumor of sin separating them from God, and we treat them as if everything's okay, what's wrong with us? 
Why would we treat people that's spiritually dead and say, Oh, oh, I'm glad we're good friends. Oh, I can always count on you. I'll always be true to you. Oh, but don't look at me on the day of judgment. I don't want to see your face. Friends, I understand that we can't make anyone do anything, but we are fooling ourselves when we think we're doing the right thing by never mentioning the Lord and people's spiritual life to them. How different would it be if we all gave our best? Just toe the line and say, I want to know Him, the power of His resurrection, and I want to help others. Let's do our best. He gave His best so that we could experience the best. And let's share it to the best of our ability with others. If you're not baptized into Christ, or if you need to come home again, let's take responsibility for ourselves. No excuses. Let's all leave here right with God and determine to help someone this year come to the Lord. If we can help you in any way,